And as you do, please, if you will, join me in turning to Ezra chapter 5. We're going to be looking at that entire chapter. Ezra chapter 5. Uh, when I was, I think I was maybe in middle school, my cousin came over and we decided we were going to make some peanut butter cookies. And so, I, if memory serves me uh, correctly, I think my, my parents left. And so my cousin and I, you know, we, we got a recipe, we pulled down all the ingredients, and we began to bake. Now, we, we wanted these peanut butter cookies to be extra special, extra gooey, extra good. And so from our vantage point, we thought, well, butter is good, right? I mean, who doesn't like butter? So if a little butter is good, a lot of butter is even better. <laughs> so what we decided to do is double or triple the butter in these peanut butter cookies. We got to work. Eventually, these cookies came out. Right when my mom came home, I'm pretty sure she was the first one to get to try those cookies that, frankly, were less cookie and more toffee or something. And I learned a valuable lesson that day. More butter doesn't equal more better, right? Now I've had to learn this lesson over and over again, All right? Because it works for everything, right? If you want to build an Ikea you know, dresser or desk, you need the right tools, the right ingredients, the right nails, right? I, I don't work at Boeing. I'm pretty sure you need more than duct tape to build an airplane, right? Uh, we just got a dog, pray for us, and we had a dog trainer come to our house. Yes, those things exist just for me and my family because we don't know what we're doing, right? And, and we learned through this dog trainer that you need the right tools and training techniques in order for your dog to follow you. If you want to build anything, like anything, you need the right tools. You need the right ingredients. So I guess this morning I want to ask, what about a church? How do you build a church? Now, I, I don't mean a physical building. The church is not a physical building. The church is people, right? The church gathers together in a building, but the church is not a building. The, the church are people who are gathered around a shared identity, a shared identity in Jesus Christ. So that being the, the case, how do you build that church? How do you build the people of God? This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ezra. We're going to be looking at chapter 5. Now, the first few chapters, if you remember, it's kind of like an, uh, uh, a sort of emotional roller coaster. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, there's kind of like an uptick. It's, it's exciting, right? They're going to rebuild the temple, and they begin to put their hand to that labor. And then, if you remember from last week, there's chapter 4. And you've got their discouragement, opposition comes, and the building halts. And now, chapter 5, as you heard, as Phil read it, it's another kind of uptick. There's, there's hope baked into the text. So what, what we're going to find is a, a few lessons in chapter 5. Uh, and this is the big idea that should be behind, uh, behind me on the screen. And it's simply this, that God builds his temple three ways, through his word that provokes, 
God builds his temple second through his eyes that protect. And then third, God builds his temple through his servants that repent. That's what we're going to look at in those three points. Now remember, God's people were in exile for 70 years. And a remnant of God's people, they returned to rebuild in Jerusalem. The king of Persia, none other than King Cyrus, gives them permission to do so. And so they build the temple foundation and the altar. But, but for years, for decades, the kind of building project waxes and wanes. And then we get to the end of chapter 4 and we read this. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The building project began under King Cyrus and then it slowed under the next king, whose name was King Cambyses. And then it came to a flat-out halt in that third king, King Darius, until the second year of his reign. But then something happened, verse 1. God sends two men. God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, basically, their prophetic ministry... It was basically about the same thing, that the topic was about um, encouraging God's people to finish what they had started, to continue to build the temple and not to get distracted. That was both of their ministry. But they went about it in different ways, right? And if you think about it, this, when we read in verse 1 that, you know, these two prophets come on the scene, we might go, oh, 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 great, but... But this is a big deal. I mean, it had been years since God had spoken through a prophet in the land of Jerusalem, not since Jeremiah. So the expectation is growing. And in 520 BC, these prophets speak. Now, what, what did they say? What was their message? Well, Thankfully, we know what they said. We know what they spoke. We have books of, uh, um, of theirs, and so we know their basic message. And both of them, again, were encouraging the rebuilding, but they talked in actually very different ways. One, sort of the tone is more of rebuke, and the other, the tone is more of promise and hope. The rebuke comes mainly from Haggai. Who, who really does rebuke God's people for m m their concern more for their comfort or their concern for their own personal houses than for their concern for the building of the temple. I, I just want to just kind of get us kind of a flavor of the, the prophet Haggai. Let, let me just read you a few verses from the book of Haggai. Verse 1. You, you can go there if you want. If not, just listen in. In the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet and the prophet asks this rhetorical punchy question. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Then if you go down to verse 7, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Verse 9, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies yourself with his own house. That guy's pretty clear. It wasn't just opposition that kept them from building the temple. We saw that opposition last week. It came, it was ferocious, it was harassment. But that's not the only reason why they stopped building. The book of Haggai is pretty clear. It's, uh, it's pretty blunt. It, it gets to the point. God's people had become idle. Sinfully slothful. Spiritually neglectful, doxologically dormant. They were idle. God's people were much more concerned with their bathroom remodels or their kitchen remodels or the hardwood floor than they were with building the temple of God. And so Haggai rebukes God's people because of their HGTV dreams. Right? And we all have them. And yet they were so focused on those sorts of dreams that they neglected to do the very thing that God had sent them to do, which was rebuild the temple. Right? Now, this sermon is not on the book of Haggai, but you get the application for us this morning. I mean, how easy it is for little things, maybe important things, but little things to distract us for greater things. That's Haggai. But Zechariah is different. His prophecy, it's not as much rebuke. Its main force focuses on the the glorious future that awaits Judah. Let me me read a few verses from the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And I will make nations, and, and and many nations, excuse me, shall join in themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And then if you were to flip over to chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on that stone that I have sent before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So here in the book of Zechariah, we have a prophecy. And And it really is a prophecy about the coming Davidic king. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. It's sort of a cause. future hope dangled in front of God's people that in but a day by a single act this Messiah would take away the iniquity of God's people the sins of God's people by dying in their place and so Zechariah sort of pulls from this prophetic string to inspire God's people to persevere in rebuilding that temple as they wait the ultimate building of the ultimate temple through Jesus Christ. 
So you can think of sort of the, the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah as the lightning and thunder of prophetic ministry. Right, one comes in rebuke, and the other comes in the language of promise. But the goal in both is the exact same, which is to provoke God's people to get on with it, to take up the mantle, and to build the house of God. And that's exactly what takes place in chapter 5, doesn't it? Right? God's, work, God's word is spoken through God's prophets. Verse 2, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they lead God's people to rebuild. The rebuilding begins. The rebuilding that, that, that stopped in verse 24, now in verse 2, begins again. God's word does this. God's word provokes God's people to action. Sometimes he, God's word comes to us by way of rebuke, doesn't it? Other times, God's word comes to us more like a promise. Sometimes God's word comes to us, um, you know, sort of, to, uh, it comes like a carrot. Other times it comes like a, you know, a stick. Sometimes rebuke. Sometimes promise. Sometimes like a mirror pointing out our sin so that we might flee from it. Other times like a Christmas present under a tree. We see it and we long to open it. But either way, God's word, it comes to us and it provokes God's people to build his church. Because here's the wonderful thing. God's word is sufficient to build God's church. Now, that might not be a very popular notion these days. The the notion that God's word is sufficient to accomplish building God's church. And yet, Historically, this is what Christians have always believed. I mean, it really was one of the marks of the Protestant Reformation. I'll give you one illustration or example. Have you ever noticed uh, an interior decorating difference between a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox church versus a Protestant church? An altar, like it would be in a Roman Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox. It's a pulpit. Because the, the, the... Protestant reformers and subsequent churches wanted to put front and center God's word, that God's word builds the church. God's word comes by way of God's people and builds God's people up. God's people are built up by God's word. God's people they're sustained by God's word. God's people feed on God's word. After all, God's people are saved through the word, the ultimate word, Jesus Christ. And it's always been this case. Abraham heard the word of God and he was provoked to action. Moses heard the word of God and he led God's people out of Egypt. God's word came to Joshua and David and Solomon and it comes to us as well. Ultimately, it comes to us through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who speaks not only for God, but also he speaks as God. Who rebukes us of our sins, as Haggai does, but then also at the same time fulfills the promise of Zechariah 
that Zechariah the prophet announced that though sin be great, our Savior's sacrifice is greater. God's word builds the church. Now, second, let's, let's look at this second point. God builds his temple through his eye that protects. Go down to verse 3. Enter Tatnai. Now, who, who is this guy? Well, think of him as like a, a governor of a part of the Persian Empire. And at this point, the, the, the sort of Persian Empire... There were either rumors or whispers or actual revolts at this time, right? So, so you can kind of imagine why Tatanai is sort of on edge, why he's sort of skeptical of this building project. He's like, what, what's going on here? What, what, what are you doing? And so he asks a question in verse 3. He basically says, I mean, who, who gave you permission to, to build? And then you, you, you see that, uh, you know, Tatnai is a sort of tattletale, right? Verse 4, he, he takes down names. He wants a list of names in, in case this whole thing goes south. And then in verse 5, you read this. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So the word of God goes through, comes through the prophets of God. They're provoked. They begin rebuilding. And then you've got this sort of governor, this Persian official who comes down and says, I need to see some papers. I need to see your permits. What are you doing here? And you'd think, you know, especially in light of chapters 3 and chapters 4, that, I mean, they're hosed. I mean, they're going to just cease rebuilding. But it doesn't happen, does it? Verse 5, they keep on building, even while Darius and uh, Tat and I have a conversation about the legitimacy of this building project. And if you were asking, well, how is that possible? Well, the author is quite clear. God's eye was on them. God's eye was on them. Now, we read of that sort of phrase in other places in your Bible. Well, one might think of Psalm 33, verse 18. But the eye of the Lord, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him and those who hope in his unfailing love. Or if you then just kind of go to the next Psalm, Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. So what does it mean that God's eyes are upon people or on a people? Well, basically it's sort of language, metaphorical language communicating that God's Protecting his people. It's a metaphor describing God's sovereign care. Maybe you know George Orwell's 1984, that fictional book, with Big Brother watching everything. Well, God's like Big Brother, only way better. God sees everything. And his vision is way better than 2020. God sees all that there is, all that, all that you've done in the past, all that you're thinking about doing right now in the present, and all that you will do in the future. God knows it all. He is watching it all. It's all under his sovereign care. He surveys all that has, all that's going on, all that has been going on, all that will go on, and it's under his providential care such that he could perfectly and divinely protect his people and his own self-interests. 
In Ezra 4, God protected the rebuilding of the temple. Even when Tatnai and these Persian officials sort of seek to kind of think through if they should stop this rebuilding project, nevertheless, God protects it, and they continue to rebuild. God's eye of protection, it's upon God's people in Ezra, and the same is true for us. God's eyes are fixated on his people. And no government official, no government itself can stop that which God seeks to accomplish. God's eyes are that powerful because they're on his people. Which doesn't mean that God's people won't suffer. It doesn't mean that God's people won't go through trials or hardship. It just does mean, though, that in the midst of those hardships, in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that suffering, God works all things, not just good things, but all things according to his purposes. God's word provokes, but God's word also protects. God's eyes protect So I think the application for us this morning, or one of them at least, is to just keep on going, not to stop, to keep on building, to worry not, because God sees us. The the call and application is not to fear. I think one one of the ways in which we do this is that we read as Christians history very differently. We actually read history backwards. We take, we take the finished history, the future, and we pull it into the present. We take how this story is going to end, and we remind ourselves of that while we live in the midst of the middle of the story. And I know, and you know how the story ends. Through Jesus Christ, the church is victorious. God's going to build his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He will build his church, and no government can thwart that. And the reason that we find out in the book of Ezra, the the reason that we can have confidence in that is that God does not blink. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't blink. His eyes are always open. He sees all like an eagle with his sovereign eye of protection on us, securing all of his interests, and nothing is outside of his sovereign care. I mean, every season has its particular fears. In the middle of the 20th century, there was Red Scare. Early in the 21st century, we had 9-11 Scare. And frankly, this is to say nothing of the scare of cancer, the scare of bullies, the scare of loneliness, We could go on and on and on. We all experience various fears. And yet, how do we get through those fears? We don't get through those fears by staring, by keeping our eyes open and staring at those fears. No, the thing that helps us through those fears is that God's eyes are upon us. And as we realize that, we do the very thing that the psalmist tells us to do, which is to lift up now our eyes not upon our fears, but to turn our eyes upon the mountain, upon the hill, because of who's there, God himself, the maker of heaven and earth.
God reigns, and he's going to build his church because his eyes are fixed to the task. And now thirdly, lastly, God's going to build his temple, and he does so through his servants who repent. Go to verse 6. What we see basically in verses 6 all the way through the end of the chapter is Tatnai's letter to Darius. The letter begins in verse 7. Tatnai writes that he went down to Judah to the house of the great God. I don't think that means that he's a worshiper of God. I think he's probably just saying that, that th- that's what these people called this God, the God of that land. And then in verse 9, Tatnai informs the king that he asked the leaders of Judah the question that we read back in verse 3, the question of who gave them permission. And then Tatnai writes what the leaders of Israel said in response to that question. And we read of that in verse 11, kind of to the end of the chapter. Israel replies, We are servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which, is, which a great king of Israel built and finished. That great king, King Solomon. We know that. They probably didn't know that. But, but more than who, who built this great temple, notice how they self-identified. They self-identified as servants of the God of heaven and earth. You'd think in order to kind of uh, get in good graces with the king, they might say, we are humble servants of the Persian Empire. We are humble servants of the king of Persia himself. That's not what they say. In one sense, that would be true, but that's not what they say. They don't point out that identity. They point out a sort of fundamental, more primary identity. That though they were Persian citizens, in a more fundamental, a more true sense, they were citizens of heaven. They were servants of the God of heaven and earth. And... Wonderful for us, we too find our heritage in that identity and the word that they use to describe themselves, servants. Our fundamental identity isn't as a a mother, a father, a husband, a wife. You know, I, I work here, I work there. I'm an American or no, whatever nation. That is not our fundamental primary identity. All of us have dual citizenship, two passports. One says USA or whatever, but the other one says kingdom of God. And what we learn here is that after 70 years in exile, thank God, God's people hadn't forgotten the truth that they were fundamentally primary God's servants. That one citizenship trumped the other. It was more important that they were citizens of the kingdom of God than citizens of any other earthly kingdom. Well, the letter goes on. And from verse 12 to 16, we we have a history lesson. They sort of explain what had gone on the first few chapters of the book of Ezra. 
And they explain that Nebuchadnezzar, before that, right, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, they, they took them into exile. And then verse 13, but King Cyrus made a decree and said that they could go back and rebuild. Verse 14, they were given back their religious treasure. Verse 16, they then laid the foundation of the temple and they continued to rebuild to this day. Verse 17, so if the king kind of wants to know if this is true, the king can go back into the royal archives and see the truth that King Cyrus really did make that decree, and that should settle the matter. And that is the cliffhanger that we're going to leave you on, right? Chapter 6 is the reply that King uh, Darius gives, and Lord willing, next week we'll look at that. But I just want to point out um, sort of a text or an emphasis that I left out. Look at verse 12. In many ways, I think there's just a spotlight on verse 12. Because not only did they give a strict history lesson and, and sort of detailed why and how they had permission to rebuild, they also sort of theologically interpreted how they've gotten to the very place that they're at. Verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans who destroyed this house and carried us away to the people of Babylon. Notice that God's people, as they sort of historically unpack the exile, they interpret the exile. And the interpretation is pretty simple, isn't it? They angered God. They sinned. Their idolatry caused the exile. They don't blame shift. They interpret the exile in a very unique way. Because if you think about it, in the ancient Near East, when one nation fought another nation, it wasn't just that two nations were fighting, those gods were fighting as well. Such that if Your nation lost, well, it was tantamount to your God losing. And so you'd think they might be thinking, well, since Babylon conquered us, our God must have been defeated. But that's not how they interpret this. There was divine purpose in this exile. They were conquered not in spite of their God, but because of their God. It was God's divine purpose for them to be taken into captivity so that God could save a remnant out of captivity. So as low as God's people are sort of at this moment in redemptive history, verse 12 tells us, tells us something amazing. It tells us that the catechesis of the exiles worked. That they finally understood why they were sent into exile, why they were sent into captivity. The penny had finally dropped. They finally understood why they were driven from the temple, driven from their home, driven from their land, driven from their family. It was because they angered God, it was because of their sin. They were beginning to feel the true weight of their sin which, let me just remind you, is nothing less than a miracle. 
the 20th century pastor and author Martin Lloyd-Jones, while sort of reflecting on this idea of the, the miracle of seeing the weight of your sins, he writes this. You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. And yet, there is only one way to know God that we are sinners, to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering concept of God himself. In other words, we don't naturally feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. And yet, here we see the seed of a miracle. God's people acknowledging their sin, their culpability before God, which is nothing short of a miracle. If the church is to be built, it's got to be built on that foundation. The foundation of, that, that all have sinned. The, the, the foundation that our sin drives us away from God, that our sin angers God, that our sin is an act of treason before God, that our act deserves, our sin deserves a treason's death even. Yet, God would then bring us out of captivity. He would bring us out of exile. He would redeem a people for himself. He would build his temple such that he could forever live and dwell with his people, and he would do so by sending his only son into captivity. Jesus himself, who identified himself, right? there's many things that Jesus said. He said he was a king, right? Think of all of the I am statements. But it's curious because John chapter 2, Jesus identifies himself as something quite interesting. The Pharisees ask him sort of what on, on what authority he can teach like he teaches and say this sort of, of things that he says. And Jesus responds, I'll destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Those are fighting words. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? And then we have sort of like a parentheses, verse 21. But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. God builds his church and he builds it on the sacrificial life, death of his son, Jesus Christ. It's the only way that he builds his church. By men and women acknowledging their sin, repenting of their sin, and running from their sin to the presence of Jesus Christ himself who welcomes us, who embraces us, who accepts us and clothes us with his own righteousness. As Puritans would often say, when we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us. Isn't that good? When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us. Their hope like our hope, their confidence like our confidence, their comfort like our comfort rested upon God's promise and God's delight to save sinners. It's how he built his church. It's how he's always built his church. Christ is, after all, the chief cornerstone. 
God builds His church. He builds His people up. And He does so through His Word that provokes. He does so through His eyes that protect. And He does so through servants who repent of their sin and put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ingredients that build the house of God. Not slick technique. Not social media savvy. Not butter. Something better. God builds His church through God's Word under His own care with servants who repent of their sins and put their trust and faith in that Son. That's how He builds His church. I've seen it firsthand. I'm looking at it firsthand. You've seen it as well. And by God's grace, He will continue to do so on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that in spite of our sin, you build your church. That while we were yet and still sinners, you died for us. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the unity of the church, that, that, that our foundation is in you and we're built upon the foundation. Lord, we, we just pray, Lord, that, that, that as we go from this place, that your word would reverberate out from among this place and from around your church. And that we would talk about your word around the lunch table and the dinner table as we pray and tuck our kids in at night, as we go on dates, as we run, as we talk with neighbors. Lord, we pray that your word, your prophetic word of hope in Jesus Christ would go forth in an extraordinary way in our lifetime, in our community, with those we love. And we commit that to your sovereign care in your son's name. Amen.